This is On Call with Dr. Dave. Today we have a very special guest because we're talking to one of my mentors. So actually like my main mentor that trained me during my fellowship. So Dr. Mark, thank you for coming on. And if you want to introduce yourself and just let us know a little bit about yourself. Thanks everybody. I'm uh, Mark, born in Brooklyn, New York. Grew up pretty close to where I practice now in the suburbs. of, And I've been uh, on staff at the hospital for 24, 25 years now, not counting the years that I spent training there as well. And like David said, he was one of my uh, fellows a few years back. So I don't know if everybody in the audience knows what a fellow is or what a resident is. Do you want to take us through that just briefly? Sure. Well, as, as all three of us here know, Ashley said also everybody, <laughs> as we know, a fellow is well, well above a resident. Um, but all joking aside, you know, when people finish med school, um, no matter what specialty they go into, the first year of training after you've gotten your medical degree is your internship, which is often in the same specialty, but for ophthalmology like David and I did, um, it can be in either medicine or surgery or a combination of the two, followed by your residency, which is the specific area that you're training for, um, which again for ophthalmology is three years. And then once you're done your residency, you're completely ready to go out into the world and practice the specialty that you trained in for residency. But some people decide to go further and subspecialize more and they do a fellowship, which for ophthalmology, there's actually a large number of fellowships. And what David and I do, oculoplastic oculofacial is one of the tougher ones probably, but it's a two years of additional training after everything else that David's talked about. So after I finished up my training, I went into private practice. What kept you in an academic center training people? It's really something that I just, I always love doing. When I finished my fellowship, just like you, I interviewed mostly at private practices. Um, I sort of had an idea that they would want me to come back to my residency, which, you know, it's always flattering when, when you think that's going to happen. Um, what I found when I was interviewing for private practices is that, you know, I like some of the things that we were talking about. And, and you know, I think David got into a, a nicer private practice situation that most people don't find. But a lot of the ones I was looking at, it was going to be a combination of doing some plastic surgery, some oculoplastic surgery, and even a little bit of general. And that really wasn't my interest at that time. Mm -hmm. So that's how I, I chose that. And then I stuck with it because I, I've always just found that I had a love for training people. I think that's the one thing I miss being in private practice. I don't miss some of the hierarchy and some of the red tape of being in an academic center, but I miss teaching the residents and the medical students that would rotate through. I really do miss that part of teaching and training. I think the nurses and the scrub techs get annoyed when I'm pointing out anatomy during the surgery or trying to teach them things that they don't really need to know. But I just, I have to say certain things. I just, I, I really have a love of teaching. So that's, that's the one thing I do miss. I think most people who go into medicine, especially, you know, I think the majority go into medicine for the right reasons. I think they all have a, a certain like love and almost you feel an obligation to teach, whether it's in a formal setting or in a private setting like yours, it doesn't negate the ability or the desire to teach. Yeah. Now you've been training residents and fellows, you said for 22 years now. That's how long you've been? Yeah, 20, close, close, close to 25 years. Okay. So decent number of fellows, decent number of residents. Now, from the time you started till the time now, have you noticed a change in what people are interested in, work ethic? I know there's a lot of talk about Gen X versus millennials and now the upcoming Gen Z, how that's shifting. Have you noticed that trend in, in training people as well? 
I think I've noticed the trend. Luckily, I haven't noticed that as much in the in the fellows that I'm training. You know, so certainly the the kind of clichéic, you know, groupings of where we describe people by their generations hold somewhat true. You know, and and the newer generations, whatever letter of the alphabet we're up to now, you know, tend to, as a generalization, not want to work as hard. You know, they want to know when they get their time off, when they can punch the clock. They sometimes seem like they want to do the the least amount as opposed to, you know, what just needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But that's something that, and, and David, you know this, I mean, that, that goes against every fiber of my being. So <laughs> I think for the most part, the fellows that end up with us, and, and honestly, most fellows, it's a pretty rigorous fellowship wherever you go, um, are people that, you know, are going to put in that extra effort and they want to put in the extra effort and they want to be exceptional at what they do. Mm-hmm. And your fellowship, I mean, I always gave you a hard time because your fellowship back then was one year instead of two. So, you know, I always always gave you a hard time about trading for just one year instead of two. But I think your training was pretty grueling for the year that you're there. Any kind of big memories or thoughts from your years of training or when you were training? It it was almost more emotionally grueling than, than physically grueling. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I was lucky enough to train, be trained. Um, actually by a father and son, and they were both very respected, still are very respected within our field, really one of the grandfathers of the field of oculoplastic surgery. So, you know, he was there when when the society was forming, when all these earlier surgeries were kind of becoming reality, you know, and he had just a, a wealth of experience. And and what, do you, what did you find was the most difficult thing about training when you were training? I think... Kind of, you have to learn as a fellow and even as a resident, you have to adapt your techniques and your personalities to the attending that you're working with at the time. Um, and, and these were two very particular men, and, and they did a lot of the surgeries the same way. Um, but, you know, sometimes surgeon B hypothetically would take insult if the fellow or the resident training did the surgery more like surgeon A. Um, whereas I think that there's tremendous value to to learning even the same technique for multiple surgeons. Yeah, I, I agree. So, you know, when I was training with you, there were three surgeons teaching me different techniques. And when I was with each surgeon, you wanted me to learn what technique you wanted to do, but I don't think you ever were angry or looked down upon me for trying the techniques that the other surgeons were using. So that was always nice. Not to your face. (laughs) (laughs) No, honestly. So one of my favorite little tricks about having a fellow and having a fellowship is, you know, when I send them, not just within our department when we have multiple surgeons, but when I send them to some of my colleagues out in the community um, and they'll often come back and say, Hey, I was with this doctor the other day and they did the surgery that you and I do, but they did it a different way. You know, can we try it that way next time? You know, and it, and it leads to like a great discussion on why do they do it that way? Or why do I do it this way? Um, and there's, there's always more than one way to do these surgeries. So mm-hmm. at the very least we can try a new technique. And I, I've definitely, adapted a few things from from some of my extended colleagues over the years that that the fellows have kind of secretly brought back to me (laughs) well even even when i finished fellowship i started doing my own thing being in private practice there's certain things that i just didn't enjoy or the techniques that i didn't really like in fellowship that i'd read about you know from other surgeons and i remember just trying a bunch of different techniques and some things i adapted or made my own and then sometimes i would just go back to exactly how i did in fellowship because no matter what i did the results were the best with the way I was trained. And so some of those things were like, Hey, you can't improve upon this. This is a really good technique. So now the other thing we were talking about just recently was were difficult cases. So 
I found that some of the bread and butter cases that I do every single day, they become routine, even though I'm still trying to improve on the nuance and still trying to perfect everything. But some cases just stick out as just excessively difficult. What do you, what do you feel like some of the most difficult cases have been in your career? You know, in terms of, I think it's, it's just individual specific kind of situations that come up um, as opposed to, you know, a group of surgeries or one consistent surgery. Um, so, you know, one of the, the tougher cases more recently, and it wasn't necessarily in the management, it was just in terms of how we had to handle this patient, but a patient who got referred in, you know, for a droopy eyelid evaluation, for a ptosis evaluation. And, you know, you, like you said, we, we do the common things commonly, but the, the trick is to know when something's falling outside of the norm, like when it's not kind of matching expectations or patterns. And, you know, you step back and you look at this patient in the chair and it's not just that the eyelid's droopy, but the, you know, the, the globe is being pushed off to the side. He's got this very erythematous kind of abnormal process coming from the forehead. You know, I told him and I could feel in the orbit that there was something solid back there. So I had to tell him that, you know, yes, you came for a droopy eyelid, but we're actually going to have to send you, you know, for a scan because I think there's a, a tumor in the orbit. Mm-hmm. And then even the radiologist read, read it as normal. And I, you know, obviously Dave and I, we always look at all our scans ourselves because, you know, there was an infiltrating tumor. And it turned out that he had had a, a skin cancer treated appropriately years ago elsewhere, as we always say. And that he just hadn't, he'd been lost to follow up or just assumed everything was taken care of. And this tumor over the decades had kind of grown down from his forehead into his orbit. So we had to mm-hmm. actually remove not just the, the eye, but the entire socket. Oh, yeah. Those are my least favorite cases. Those are always difficult just for the patient. Surgically, they're not all that surgically difficult, but just how disfiguring it is for the patient, especially when he just thought he had a droopy eyelid. Yep. Yeah. It's then- always tough when a patient comes in expecting one thing and then. You have to tell them something else, especially when it's, you know, it's one thing, you know, with a more benign situation where they come in for droopy eyelids and we talk to them about droopy eyebrows. But when they come <laughs> in for droopy eyes, and you tell them that they might have a tumor. That's a, that's a tough discussion. To have. Yeah, it's yeah. difficult. Yeah. I think one of the more difficult cases that I remember when we were training together that I still talk to people about is just sometimes the unexpected things that happen in the operating room. There's a gentleman that had a, a, a vascular tumor. So... We knew we had a tumor in the orbit. We'd done a bunch of imaging. We prepared for our case, just like we always prepare for. And we weren't planning to do anything major. We were just going to go biopsy the tumor to just to figure out exactly what was going on, to see if it was something that needed to be removed or managed in a different way. So it was like we were completely prepared for it, but we went in. We took a little piece of the tumor to send it to the pathology, and then it just kept bleeding and bleeding. And I remember it took a long time to get the bleeding stopped. And, you know, if I think back, I think it was close to a liter of blood before we finished that case. And so that was one of those things that just taught me to never take even something that seemed simple from the outset for granted that it, it's still surgery. You still got to be prepared. I mean, we, you were calm the whole time. We got the bleeding under control. The patient did fine. We got the answers. But I, I still remember that case because it turned out so different than what I thought I was walking into. Yeah, and absolutely. And I remember that case. And I, and I always say to you, we, we always want, we never want anything bad to happen to a patient. We do everything we can to prevent that. But part of the experience when you're in your training is that you, you need to see some of these complications happen and, and hopefully manage, you know, well and correctly and the patient does okay. But, you know, like you said, surgery is extremely difficult. 
you know, I think people in the operating room that we work with, you know, the non-physicians, you know, we're very comfortable with what we do. We're obviously, you know, I joke around a lot. That's part of the way I deal with things. But they, they don't realize that we've gone through a tremendous amount of planning before we walk into the operating room. Like we've looked at the scans. We've kind of almost in a feng shui or, or a kind of a preparation kind of way. We, we go through the motions that we're going to go through during surgery. And we, we think about how we're going to handle if X, Y, or Z happens. And, and certainly bleeding, especially bleeding within the orbit, is something we have to always be ready to deal with because, you know, it, it's a closed space so it's almost like a what we call a compartment syndrome where you can go go blind if the blood builds up behind the orbit mm-hmm. yeah so that one's always stuck with me now i think we we were mentioning just not too long ago when we were talking about doing this interview we were talking about you know this the most the strangest experience you've had with a patient and you mentioned a, a person that had a gunshot wound and had done well with his initial surgery and then things went uh kind of devolved from there yeah like i said were you involved i think you're probably involved with this care at least at one point over the years well i remember i remember that case really well because not because of what happened afterwards but leading up to it it was a resident that uh got the consult first the resident was on call oh was you okay yeah and they, they got a call about this patient that had a gunshot wound and the resident was being a good resident and pulled up the ct scan i was looking at the ct scan and he saw bone fragments and bullet fragments in in the brain and he says "Ooh, i don't know what do you think like should i wait a little bit to see if this guy's doing okay or if he's going to live through the night before i consult on him and i said he's probably awake talking in his room because i was looking at the scan i could see where the bone fragments were where the bullet fragments right. were they were all frontal lobe and i said this guy is probably fully awake and you can go talk to him and the resident thought i was crazy he, he thought i was just like just completely messing with him and he went and consulted on the guy, came back and he said, hey, he was awake. He talked to me. I said, yeah, I know. I saw his scans. Like, I knew he was, I, I've seen multiple gunshot wounds. You know, we trained in Baltimore. It, it comes up. And so I, I was there for his first surgery, did the first surgery with you. But I, I think it was more toward the end. It was at least my second year with you. So I didn't do anything other than that first surgery on him before I moved on. And so I lost track of that case after that. Yeah, so I mean, it was a you know severe, severe trauma. So gunshot wound. I mean, we had to remove the eye either with the first or with the second surgery, mm-hmm. you know, because the eye was ruptured, and then you know pretty severe mid facial fractures and nasal fractures, and you know surgery went well. And you know, I people who are you know from the inner city that get involved in you know unfortunate gunshot events, you know, it you you tend to form an opinion of them before you meet them. And I always, I always go out of my way not to do that. And we were talking before about, you know, how I like to joke around with patients. And, you know, one of the reasons I joke around, I mean, it's, it's just part of my being, but I like to joke around with patients because on some level, it I'm trying to tell them that I don't think that I'm above them at all. So, you know, I would joke around with him and, you know, we'd have a good rapport and obviously had tremendous, tremendous injury. So over the years after you left, we had to do a few reconstructions, you know, his one of his implants or plates got infected. We had to revise that. He needed some nasal reconstruction. That was part of the issue that he would just never go see, you know, one of our ENT colleagues for the final nasal reconstruction. And mm-hmm. At some point years later, he just called into the office and something happened with his scheduling or something else. And he essentially went crazy and he had threatened 
my secretary, he said that he was going to come shoot out very, very graphically and descriptively. Sorry about that. Yeah. So I very mean, descriptively, he had, he had threatened that he was going to shoot her, who he went to high school with, shoot me. And, you know, we had to call the, the hospital security, which is a pretty high level hospital security. I had to go downtown and get a, what they now call a peace order against him. And then for, for months, I, I was literally terrified walking out of my building. And that's just hard to hear because you've had nothing but good intentions for this gentleman, helped him, did his surgery, want nothing bad for him. And then to feel threatened or not to feel safe doing your job anymore. Somebody asked me once on this podcast if I ever felt unsafe. And I, I honestly could say I, I haven't. I've had good experiences. Even with, when I was working in the medical prison during residency, I never really felt unsafe. But I, I, I don't know how it, I would handle that if I had a patient that was that aggressive. Yeah, so it was tough. Like, knock on wood, nothing ever came of it. And, you know, and then it was a separate nightmare working my way through the the legal system trying to get this process started. They were it was not a very friendly kind of system. Like they were very adversarial with me when I was I was the victim at that point. It was like very tough dealing with the judge and the whoever else was in the room at the time. Now, I don't know how much interaction you had with his family. Did they feel like his personality changed a lot? I mean, it was a frontal lobe injury, which can sometimes change your personality and make people more impulsive. Do you think that had anything to do with it? So I'd never, I'd never met his family. He, you know, he was an adult. He came in on his own, young adult. Um, but, you know, my secretary actually went to high school with him. So, you know, she had known from, you know, back when they were both in high school that he was a, a bit of a hothead. So maybe it was a little bit more going on. And obviously, I mean, he suffered tremendous trauma. I mean, he lost an eye, he needed multiple facial surgery. So I get all that. But, you know, at some point, you have to step back and, and I'm not the one who caused yeah. the injury. No, definitely not. So what's the funniest moment or uh, patient encounter of your career? It's tough to say what the funniest one is, because there are plenty of funny ones over the years. But the, the one when you asked me that question, the one that came to mind first was, you know, I go to a lot of outside offices, like I said, David knows this, I go to a lot of outside offices to, to do consultations and surgeries. And I'm at this office one day and this older woman comes in and she's referred in for a tearing eye. And, you know, I do a, an exam and a workup. And part of that workup is we, we flush some salt water down the tear drain. And if it's blocked, you know, they have a blocked tear duct. So I said, I did that. And I said to the woman, you know, well, it looks like you have a blocked tear duct. We can fix that with a, an outpatient surgery. We abbreviate that as a DCR, but it's it's essentially a tear duct reconstruction. I, I talked through it all with her and she looks at me very annoyed and she goes, yeah, that's exactly what the last doctor told me. And I, I without missing a beat, I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I was the last doctor. <laughs> so, so she had literally seen me like months prior at another location. I had no idea she would come and see the same person for a second opinion. <laughs> second opinion from the first doctor. <laughs> yeah, but it shows how consistent I am with my diagnosis also. True. <laughs> Now, I remember something kind of unique about where we where I trained under you is a lot of places with oculofacial plastics, we do the traditional core oculofacial plastics, but where where you are and where I was at the time, we did face call as well. So taking that primary face call. And I remember the first day I was on face call, it was a horrible nasal injury. This older lady fell down and her nose split kind of two thirds and one third and almost was like a hinge and opened. That was the first moment where I thought, wow, this is definitely outside my comfort level. Then, mm -hmm. you know, I called you, you came in, you helped me reconstruct that nose. You were telling me that there was a case with one of your previous fellows where somebody lost like the whole ear. Yeah. 
you know, so, so first going back to what you said when you were first on call and, you know, every fellow goes through that. It was, it was funny, our, our current fellow, who's, who's wonderful, um, but she was at our house with her her wife. And while she was there, she got her first like face call thing. And they were both so excited that they were actually <laughs> at my house at the time. So we could call the scans together and kind of look through these like these non-orbital fractures. And that's it for me to say, yeah, it's nothing to worry about. Piece of cake. But what I probably told Dave and what I tell all the fellows, and I asked, I got this line from from Bob Goldberg and his mentor out at UCLA is that, you know, we start out with our training with microsurgery on the eye, you know, the most delicate, sensitive, important part of the body. So, you know, to some degree, if you can do that, you can do anything when it comes to this other facial trauma. So the patient David was mentioning where they lost the ear, again, another, you know, severe motor vehicle accident, pan facial trauma. Um, Unfortunately, this one, as opposed to the one we were discussing before, did not look like they were going to make it. Um, but when it came in, you know, in terms of how life overlaps with medicine, it was very, very early on for me first getting separated. So my kids were very young. I was home with my kids. Um, the fellow at the time calls me and explains the situation to me. And I, I had to talk him through how we we're going to manage the patient because, you know, it was so early on that I, I really couldn't figure out how to to manage the, you know, the night with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually what we ended up doing, because the ear itself, what was not, it was too much tissue loss to, to salvage the ear. Um, but we actually did in, in surgery when we, when we went into the operating room is we, we still had the ear. So we basically removed all the non-viable tissue down to cartilage. And then we implanted the ear just into the soft tissue of the neck behind the ear um, with the idea being that if, he ended up surviving, which unfortunately he didn't, you know, that could still be used as a grafted kind of ear down the road. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've seen that I've, I've, in medical reports or implanting it into the forearm to save the cartilage and the structure as much as possible, but I've never had to do anything like that during my career. Right, but again, like think about it, like we, we, use the, we use the ear cartilage as grafting material all the time. Oh, yeah. So again, another area that we're comfortable with. Yeah. A lot of ear surgery. I remember one time I was working with a medical student and he came in and I took a, a hard palate graft, which is inside the roof of the mouth. I had another surgery that day. I took a little buccal mucosa from the inside of the cheek. And then I went to the ear for cartilage on another case and took some skin. Right. And he says, isn't this specially based off of eye surgery? Like you haven't even really touched right. the eye this whole time. Like, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty much the whole face, but all to reconstruct portions of the eye or eyelid. Did now you told me as well that you had a fellow pass out during their training? Yeah, so actually, you know, we always joke around. So, so Alex on, who was our very first fellow, who you know, every every fellow is kind of held up to him as the yardstick, half seriously, half half jokingly. But he was the one that that passed out. So we got this great picture of him. We used to show it like during fellowship interviews. We have a great picture of him at the end of a super long day like laying in the bed in the recovery room or the operating room, like with his hand up with an IV stuck into his arm. <laughs> now, was it just in surgery he passed out or was it fatigue from just, so it, you know, it, you know, it was just a fatigue. It was, it was not like one of those, Oh my God, I saw blood kind of things because you know, that, that happens not to our fellows. That happens to the residents. I used to give out, I used to give out like a little green Kermit the frog to whatever resident passed out last <laughs> service. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but he's, he's had a long, long day. So, so speaking of that, I told David that we were going to kind of flip the uh, script a little bit on him. So we were talking before about fellowship education. So tell us from your side, 
in all seriousness, like what was the applying for fellowship process like for you? So the applying was, it was hard because it's the most, it's like the poorest you've ever been in your life. The programs really, you know, they know that you're going to go interview, but they don't really want to release you to go spend any time. And then it's kind of the culmin, it's the culmination of what you want to do. And for me, I never went into ophthalmology to do ophthalmology. In fact, when I did my ophthalmology rotation, I ruled it out really quickly as something I was interested in. <laughs> Within the first week, the doctor I was working with said, I can tell this isn't really for you. You don't really seem to be enjoying it. I'm like, ah, I tried to make it not obvious, but yeah, I don't find this interesting at all. So then he set me up with other subspecialists, glaucoma specialists, uveitis, retina, and uh, glaucoma. I, I didn't say glaucoma yeah. already, but so... I found each one just as bad as the last. So I had no interest in ophthalmology at all. And then the last two days of that rotation, I rotated with an oculoplastic surgeon. And that was the awakening. That was, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. He, the doctor told me, like I went to an OR day and a clinic day, and it was everything I liked about medicine and got rid of almost everything I didn't like about medicine. So that was my path. And so I did ophthalmology with the sole purpose of doing oculoplastics which as you mentioned at the beginning is a really tough fellowship to get into. I think the match rate depends. It's like 20 to 25% of people that apply, get a spot with through the official training program. And so all my cards were on the table. That was all I wanted to do. If I didn't match, I wasn't doing ophthalmology. Like I, I had to match. So for me, it was just so heightened. It wasn't that I enjoyed ophthalmology and yes, it'd be fun to do oculoplastics, but that was the only thing I wanted to do. And if I didn't get the fellowship, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So for me, it was just heightened. And so every kind of like letter, every invite, everything about it was just so intense. And then to go to interview and just try to play it cool and like to show that you're really interested, that you're a nice person and you're not crazy. I just had to like, you know, you don't want to, it's like a first date telling somebody, I want to get married. Totally. <laughs> it's, like, it's totally like that. You're like, play it cool, man. Play it cool. You had, a, <laughs> you had kind of, started to strong arm the oculoplastic doctor in your residency program saying, if I don't match, you are training me in your own <laughs> something and you're going to train me because this is what I cannot well, have this happen for me. So, so of, of yeah. course, I, yeah, of course I wanted the highest level training, yeah. but I told him this is all I'm going to do. And he didn't see how that was going to work. So I actually drew up a whole year schedule to do. <laughs> if you didn't know anything about Dave enough, this, yeah, that's classic Dave. And so by the end, right before interviews happened and I got my spot, the doctor that I did residency with was actually looking forward to it because he saw my plan, how I cross-champed Ian. Right. That's Jim. funny. That's awesome. I enjoyed spending time with him too. He's, he's a great guy. And so at the end when I matched, he's like, I'm so excited for you, but I was actually kind of looking forward to nice. around. And Again, same, same compliment as wanting them to come back to practice with you. You know, it's funny. Like I wasn't as ahead of the curve as you were, um, but in a similar way, I did an ophthalmology rotation as a med student because I knew some of the people actually within the department. And for me, it was, it was just actually time to do something while I was doing interviews for something <laughs> else. And I sort of, it, ophthalmology started to click, um, but it wasn't until very, 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 very early on in, in residency, I would say the first month where I got exposed to oculoplastic to the point that years earlier, my, my mother-in-law at the time had her eyelids done 
and, and she said she was having it done by an ophthalmologist. I'm like, why are you going to an ophthalmologist? <laughs> and now that's exactly what, what Dave and I do all the time. Um, but within a month of, of residency, you know, I did a rotation with, with my mentor, with my and Dave's mentor. Um, and same thing, it just clicked right away. Like, this is absolutely what I wanted to do. Like, it's more like general surgery, but around the eye. And it, mm-hmm. like you said, just it just checked all the boxes. <laughs> And then specifically with your interview process, you asked everybody to bring a mixtape. You know, what would you, what would you listen to the OR? Because and, nothing says love and dating like a mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And like we spent so much time, and I'm glad Ashley's here on the podcast. <laughs> we, we both went at it because we... Late we, nights, man. We both love it. So, and we, we so let, let me set the stage for everybody. So you know, <laughs> the, the way this started, and I tell all the applicants this once they kind of show up for the interview, Years and years ago, and I'll, I'll say Dr. Lawrence's name. So one of our earliest fellows, who's a wonderful surgeon, but the, you know we listened to music in the operating room, and she's like, "Oh, can I? Can we play my iPod? If we had iPods back then, whatever, can we play my playlist?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Sure." And her very first song was Lionel Richie dancing on the ceiling, and I like Lionel Richie. I'm not sure if I was really into dancing on the ceiling, so I said, "This is never going to happen again." So we're going to start screening everybody by having them put a. Bring, put a playlist, but the the criteria were specific. It had to be ten songs. Some people cheated. Ten songs, and it had to be music that you would listen to in the operating room while the patient was under conscious sedation. So it was nothing inappropriate to listen to. And and over the years, one, it's amused me to no end, like hearing some of the stories of how intensely people like went through this, and, <laughs> and how some people, including David, including Rob, and a few others, think that the playlist is the only way that they got into the fellowship, <laughs> which, which is not the, which is not the case. David got in because he's an exceptional person. I, I mean, but then you, you, you really get to learn something about somebody. If you go to any of your friends and say, you know, tell me the top 10 songs you would, you would put on your playlist. It, it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, well we, we took it to the extreme because I gave you two playlists so back then, we yeah. Were, so you, you you cheated and Carolina cheated. Yeah. yeah. So, but it was back when we were burning CDs. Same thing. No iPods or no digital, but we burned the CDs. So Ashley designed labels, and then I <laughs> named the the albums, and I did one for the conscious sedation, one where people were awake. And totally then remember did, that. And then I did one for sleeping patients, so I could get a little bit more. <laughs> You know, a little louder, more rowdy music, show a little more personality. I just remember when he told me that, what he needed to do that to apply. And I just looked down and I'm like, we're going to crush this. <laughs> and so I'm like, get, let's go. So I was designing stuff from, from go. And then you're staying up late. Putting, we can't put it in this order. We need more variety here. I remember that. Yeah, it's got to be the order. And, and then also, can you remember any songs that like were on the border, but you ended up throwing out? You may not remember at this point. Like I, I know I had a Jimmy Eat World song on there. We, I'm sure there was Jack White on there. I'm sure that there was. Yeah, I can't imagine I didn't have some White Stripes mm-hmm. and some Led Zeppelin and just some. Of the- That's right. That's a tough call with Jack White. Like which direction you go with? Oh, which yeah. direction you go, <laughs> and depending on which one is the patient asleep or is the patient awake. So I like, think Jack White went on the asleep. Album. I think it yeah. did. And I, and <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I do still have. I have those labels designed still. We could probably, could probably look it up. Yeah. We have those labels designed. I can totally picture where you're talking. And I also designed the um, the cases for them. Yeah, so uh, so honestly, forget about his talent. It was really the labels and the cases that got him the fellowship. <laughs> Told you. <laughs> she's taking credit. She's taking credit all these years. So you just gave her some validation. <laughs> well, 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 you know, she's she's in good company because Carolina 
like she did her album from South America. So hers was very world music focused. Mm -hmm. um, but then her, her husband, Eric, you know, she wisely put in a second uh, playlist from Eric, who's about my age. So it was like, it was all like this classic, classic 80s music. So it's totally <laughs> Eric that got her into the fellowship. Yeah. Well, like you said, I don't, I can't imagine it really helps anybody match because you're looking at skills and knowledge and working with somebody for two years. But I can remember when we interviewed when I was still there and we were interviewing for the next round of fellows and there were people that just didn't do it. And, right. you know, Same. and I'm thinking, well, I don't think the songs you choose are going to get you the spot, but just refusing to follow instructions and just not doing what the person want, you know, that's going to decide whether you got a spot or not, just not doing what they asked you to do. I mean, don't I wouldn't take up. that risk yet. I mean, just don't show up. Why can't, why bother? Yeah. It was just, you know, it was something fun though. I enjoyed that. It was a, it was just kind of a fun thing to do and to listen to other people's music. And it was also such a, like they've said, it was such a charged time for us. Then the applying process was very, very stressful. And it gave us some levity during that time because it was just. Just fun. It was, it was fun. Cause I can still remember the, the day when match day came and got the call and I was at the gym and just like, just broke down in tears that he matched. Cause like that, that relief was just, I'm just falling in the gym, yeah. you know? And, and I, I remember going through it for myself. I mean, it, it's so, so, so stressful. And, you know, we, I had a family at the time, also a young family. And it, it's like, you know, the stress that you're putting your family and your significant other through. And, you know, obviously you guys are great. And, and luckily, you know, you did an amazing job. Ashley, you did an amazing job. But both of you, like you, you came in and you found you know, you found a community right away, which makes such a difference, you know, when you're, when you're going through a process like this. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, you need people, you need support, you need to just be around. You need to try. We loved our time in Baltimore though. That was the, it was hard of, to leave. out of all the places we trained. So between medical school and residency going different places, Baltimore is the only place where we thought we would want to stay. We could stay. And you know, we kind of, we looked around for jobs in the area, but there was a job in DC, but it wasn't, I didn't want to be in DC. I want to be in Baltimore and I didn't want to compete directly against you either. You know, it didn't make sense to be like, Hey, thanks for training me. That was very thoughtful of you, David. <laughs> it, it seemed to be in bad form to stick around. So, uh, so, so, so actually, so David, I'm sure I told him this story. So he had mentioned before that I did the last of what we call the one year ASOPers fellowship. Like it used to be, and there were only like about 15, 17 programs the year I applied. So about half of them were one year, half of them were two year. Now we're all two year, mm -hmm. you know, but halfway through my fellowship, which would be six months, that's a quarter of the way through David's fellowship. <laughs> I get a call from Aesopper's home office and they're like, oh, hi, Doug. And you might've heard, you know, we're switching all the fellowship over to two years. And we just wanted to ask, would you like to stay in Albany for two years? I'm like, I'm like, no, I'm not staying in Albany for two years. <laughs> Yeah, we, we uh, lived in a, in a place during training where we were like, can we leave sooner? And that was one of the, <laughs> just the, the area that we were living in specifically during residency, it was just a little bit too remote for me. And so the fact to stay later to train oculoplastics there, it was not my favorite <laughs> thing, not my favorite idea, but we would have done it. I would have done it. Yeah, I mean, you, you have, I mean, same thing. Like like I said, I had so few options when I was applying that I had to, and my wife is from, my wife at the time, sorry, was from Baltimore. You know, I almost said she was like a, like Dracula. Like you took her away from her native soil, like she couldn't survive. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I had to say to her, 
you know, there's a good chance that we're going to end up on the on the other coast and we're just going to have to deal with it for a year or two. Yeah, we do. Yeah, there's a lot of dealing with things when you're doing medical training. You just Certain things you just have to deal with. Or, or reframe your thinking around it to make it more, um, just more doable. You don't have the option to to not deal with it. So reframing your thinking really helps. Any other stories you want to share? I don't many stories, but you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some some parting thoughts, and and this hopefully won't be edited out. You know, I, I told Dave, and I actually listened to a few of his podcasts coming on, and you know, it's flattering, like hearing like some of the words of wisdom that he's he's kept from me. You know, but but one of the reasons I, I love what I do is I, I love seeing our fellows, you know, go out into the world and succeed, and I'm so so proud of the amazing. You're still young in your career, but you've had you found the right fit. You're in the right place. You know, you're doing amazing, amazing stuff down there. And I just love like every time we, we keep a chat group with like all of our fellow alumni and people that train us. And, you know, I, I love when, when David kind of throws out some like crazy, crazy, crazy cases that like everyone else, like afraid to even touch. <laughs> well, so you, you, you should be proud of yourself. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I do love what I do. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for what you do and the time you spent with us today. That's just Thanks, my David. Wrap Thanks, up. Ashley. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.